0: G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope, and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. Today, I will be reading from Philippians 2, verses 5 through to 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Welcome up, Mike. Hey, Well, good morning. It's great to be back with the good people at City on a Hill. Um, As we come to our time in the Word, let us pray. Our Heavenly Lord, bless us now as we seek to understand the Word and the effect it will have on our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we pray we would leave here feeling transformed with the encounter with the goodness, the love, and the majesty of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, yeah, I'm also, I'm also glad to be here, part of this uh, series of verses that change people's lives. Uh, when I was thinking about which verse I should do, I mean, that there, was a, there was a lot of good candidates. There was a lot of good candidates. There was Romans 5.8 you know but god demonstrates his own love for, it, for us that while we were yet sinners christ died for us i mean that's a that's a good summary of the gospel you know i also like uh, galatians 2:20 you know i have been crucified with christ and i no longer live but christ lives in me and the life i live in the body i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me i mean there's also several parts of the psalms i could have brought out as well, and then there's another particular verse that's been my, that's really helped to me in my new role as the Deputy Principal at Ridley College, and that's Luke 19.27, which says, as for those who did not want me to rule over them, bring them before me and slaughter them. (laughs) I've been trying that one out in faculty meetings, student interviews, you know, just crushing all dissent. But unfortunately, I don't have unbridled power. We have a check and balance known as Andy Judd, who has to tell me we need to leave the slaughtering for the right time and the right place. And apparently, the time is never, and the place is nowhere. Um, but the opposite of that—the opposite of the tyrant—you know, who torments and lords over others and, and tyrannizes others is the servant king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in this wonderful passage in Philippians 2, we have, I think, one of the most sublime, poignant, and powerful statements about the incarnation, that Jesus Christ is God with us. But we also have a very powerful pointer to the example of Christ, which is a way of humility and self-renunciation. And and this has been something very important to me as I think about how do I... Curate my own personality. How do I imitate Christ? How do I bring myself into increasing conformity to the pattern of Jesus Christ? His life, His teaching, His stories, His symbols, and everything that He represents. And, and, and this passage, Philippians 2, 6, and 7, and indeed the whole Christ hymn, as we call it has been very important in that regard. And, and what, what I think we find here are three major things going on. We, we find a statement about the incarnation, a statement of Christ's humility, and we also see something of the importance of renunciation as well. So first of all, on the incarnation. You know, we have, this, we have this wonderful statement in Philippians 2 that Jesus, though he, he was in the form of God, he was equal with God, but uh, despite that, he then became human. And, and this language, being form of God, being equal with God, it means Jesus has the same level, type, species of divinity as God the Father. I mean, because sometimes people uh, think or have thought in the past that there's God the Father. He's kind of like, you know, premium diamond club level divinity. And then there's Jesus who's got like silver level divinity or something like that. But what this passage teaches is that Jesus is the, has the very form of God, the appearance of the divine glory, and he is equal to God. And if he is equal to God to the point of being, you know, if he's in the exact Radiant existence as God the Father, then he is equal with God in every way. What is true of the divinity of the Father is also true of the divinity of the Son. And that's something we regularly confess in what we call the Nicene Creed. This is something we uh, churches around the world of all types regularly confess, and they say, Jesus is God from God, okay? He is of the same uh, the same substance. I mean, the word the homoousios, and that means Jesus is equal in divinity to the to the Father's being. He's not a super duper mega angel. He's not a man who's been adopted into divine status or been granted divine honors. He never became divine. He is from eternity past and into eternity future, the eternal Son of God, co-equal with the Father. He is truly divine. He is God. He is God for us, and he is God with us. But what is so astounding is that although Jesus is Equal with God in the form of God. Nonetheless, he did not consider this equality with God something to be either grasped at or exploited. Now, here, here the translations differ quite markedly when you get to Philippians 2 6. There's a few different things. Like the old, the old King James says, uh, Jesus uh, who thought it not robbery to be equal with God. I mean, that's one way of putting it. The SV says he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped after, while the NIV says he did not consider equality with God something to be used for his own advantage. So the, the, the options here, and this is based on some of the ambiguities of the, of, of the Greek text, is equality with God something he refused to grasp after or is equality with God something he possessed but he used to exploit it or merely use it for his own self-aggrandizement? Now, I tend to prefer the second option. In fact, if you look at the update to the NIV, uh, they've taken that decision as well. Jesus did not regard equality with God something to be exploited because he's already equal with God, because he's in the very, very form of God. Now, that that's an important premise in this passage because it means Jesus did not regard equality with God as as <coughs> recusing him. <to> say, <coughs> excuse me, he did not regard his his divine status as meaning he was unable to engage in this redemptive task. Rather, it's what uniquely qualified him for this redemptive task, <coughs> precisely because he is in the uh, form of God and equal with God, he is the only one who can undertake this redemptive mission. He's the only one who can bring healing and reconciliation to human beings and indeed to the whole world. And that's what he does. And, and the, the whole poem is the story of, of, of the one who is God of God becoming human. Now, this is, this is where we get to verse 7 a passage where it talks about um, his, you know, oh, sorry, verse, the end of verse 6, where he sort of, you know, doesn't use this advantage in the wrong way. Rather, he pours himself out or he empties himself Okay. Now there's been a lot of debates about well what did Jesus empty himself of, you know? Is it kind of like he got his like he had his like divine utility belt with all his god powers, like you know, omniscience, omnipresence, uh, all those had that that like divine belt and he kind of took the belt off and then became human. Did he empty himself of his independent use of divine prerogatives? Did he lay aside you know his divine glory and radiance and majesty i mean theologians have you know debated you know what did he empty himself of in the process of becoming human but i tend to think that misses the point the emptying you know the the, the pouring himself out uh, it's not based on what he left behind the self emptying is what he added to himself though he was in the form, though he though he was God what he added to himself was our humanity and not mere humanity you know he even took the position literally of a slave he became a servant he was obedient even to death on the cross he he in other words he went from you know the highest possible point you know equality with God to the position of the death of a lowly slave, this is literally the two extreme ends of the spectrum, going from from divine majesty and glory all the way down to the most wretched and ignominious of human deaths. Okay. that's the story of Jesus. He enters into that, but this is where he undertakes his redemptive mission. This is where in this state of, of, of slavery, of death, submission, humiliation, that he affects the salvation for those whom he comes to die and rise. And added to that, we're told that not only did he, did he languish in death, but then he's exalted and he's returned to this position of glory with God the Father. But, 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 and here's the amazing thing, but not as he was before. Jesus Well, the Son of God, the Son of God becomes the man Jesus of Nazareth. He's crucified, he's risen, he returns to heaven, and he returns with his humanity with him. In other words, there is finally a human being in his glorified human state at the helm of the universe. And there's this human being, the risen and ascended Lord who is now seated at the right hand of the Father and the affairs of the universe are entrusted to him. He has become the true and authentic human being who is ruling over creation as God the Father's vice regent as humanity was always intended to and that is why he is worthy of our worship. He is the one, for, he is the one who has come for us died for us and ascended and where he is he has promised that one day we too shall be so this, this is this is a great passage talking about its christology about who jesus is but it's more than the theology of the person and the work of christ the reason why paul inserts this passage at this point in the letter is because of its ethical imperative Because what it teaches us about how we are supposed to live, and that's what Paul says in verse 5, in your relationships with one another, have the same attitude or the same mind of Christ Jesus. So we're meant to live and think as if this story should be our story. And that that means there is a big call to both humility and renunciation. And I have to tell you, in the ancient world, uh, humility... Was not considered a virtue. Uh, No, they didn't like people who brag too much, but humility was for servants, for inferiors, for slaves, people who were either by nature or by circumstance were servile. The name of the game in in, uh, ancient uh, Greek and Roman culture was the pursuit of status honor, greatness, to rise above your peers, whether that's in the Guild of Leather Workers or in the Roman Senate itself, to become the number one person, to become the top dog of your domain. That was the name of God. And it was about the pursuit of power, status, and honor. In fact, you could argue that that, that honor, honor was kind of like the, the, the Bitcoin of ancient society. Okay? It's invisible, you can't see it, but everyone wants to get a big piece of it. Okay? It was this way of having status, and that's what people wanted. And what Paul is saying is that the example of Christ is the opposite of that. It's not about chasing status. It's about pursuing Christ-likeness and the example of Christ. Now I have to be honest with you. Anyone who knows me knows that um, humility is not my biggest virtue. You see, uh, the problem is I'm kind of a world famous theologian. You know, I'm a, I'm kind of a big deal. In fact, in fact, I'm not, I'm not joking. Last week I was in another airport in another part of the world, and some stranger came up to me and said. Excuse me, are you Mike Bird? I said, yes. <laughs> I imagine you probably want an autograph and a selfie. No worries, I'll just get ready. <laughs> I'm ready for my selfie. Yeah, I mean, I, I, and, and this is why. This is why I can really relate to the character of Sheldon in the TV show, <laughs> The Big Bang Theory. Because... He's cleverer than anyone else, but when he tells everyone, they kind of get angry. You know, this is this is, this is some of the things Sheldon says I, I can relate to. I always listen to myself. It's one of the great joys in my life. <laughs> Howard, you know me to be a very smart man. Don't you think if I were wrong, I'd know it? <laughs> I can totally relate to that. Thankfully, there are things that do keep me humble, okay? There, there, is, there are moments when I realize uh, we need to have, have uh, less mycocentric preaching and more Christ-centered preaching uh, in, the, in the things that I do. Uh, you know, there's, there's a lot in Scripture that keeps me humble. I mean, there's some really verses I, I do meditate on, I do remember on a daily basis. Things like um, 2 Corinthians 4.5, Paul says, We do not preach ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Christ's sake. Or in the uh, Romans 12, Paul can tell the Romans, again, the Roman believers who live in this this, this culture of this struggle over status, he can tell them, don't think of yourselves more than you ought to. We need to think of ourselves with a sober judgment. I'm glad to say as well, my wife, my dear long-suffering wife, Naomi, she definitely keeps me humble she says to things she has to be things like Michael Frank Bird it's okay to be smarter than everybody else but you can't go around pointing it out because people don't like it that's pretty obvious that that tells me I'm going to pull my head in also my kids remind me that I'm not really all that smart I mean in fact the other day uh, my daughter said to me dad you're so smart who's Taylor Swift and I said, well, I, of course I know who Taylor Swift is. She, she, she's married to uh, Jonathan Swift, the famous author who wrote Gulliver's Travels. <laughs> Turns out, not quite. Uh, you know, a, you know this, is, this is an important saying. A, a, a great man once said, gifted and godly are not the same thing. You can't have holiness without humility. That great man was me. (laughs) But the main thing is, gifted and godly are not the same thing. Just because you're very uh, capable in in any sort of of function or skill or with people or with work doesn't necessarily mean you're a godly and Christ-like person. And if you really want to pursue holiness, you've got to have humility. And, you know... Even in the ancient world, this was an issue because I mean, you know, the thing about you know being a celebrity preacher or a celebrity Christian, or you know, simply being you know recognized as very good at what you do. I mean, we kind of want that. We don't just want to do our job or do what we do. We we want to be the best at something, and we want to be recognized at it. And that that can often mean that no matter what we're doing, either in our Christian life or just in our our regular um, aspects of life, um, there can always be an unhealthy element of. Ego and achievement, and then the needing to outperform other people. I mean, Paul was aware of that in ancient Philippi. I mean, he talked about those, he says in chapter one, those who preach Christ out of selfish ambition. And the fact of the matter is, you know, we live in a media ecosystem. We're all told that you know we've got we've got to be influencers. We've got to have you know we've got to max out our Facebook friends. We've got to have that little TikTok channel. You know we've we've got to have um, you know we've 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 got to be the ones that people want to go to. We've all got to get all the attention on ourselves and for ourselves and and about ourselves. Uh, And and even in Christian ministry, you can get that a sense of competitiveness or a, a very unhealthy celebrity culture. Where it's less about making much of Christ. And sometimes it can be making much of ourselves. But we need to be more like John the Baptist. You know, someone once told John the Baptist, hey, have you noticed, John, um, some of your followers are all going over and joining Jesus' thing? John the Baptist said, well, I must decrease, he must increase. So you call that the John the Baptist rule of life. It's a pretty good one to live by. Because if we don't do that, if we do get big head, if we do get too much ego in our lives, become self-consumed, we can end up neglecting the people around us. We can end up hurting them with our own selfishness, our own desire to perform and to achieve. That can, that can have, a, have a very unhealthy impact. I mean, I'm always worried that one day someone's going to do a podcast called The Rise and Fall of Mike Bird. It's like, oh, well, he started out kind of, you know, kind of witty and quirky. And then he started demanding everyone call him Professor Bird. And then he started insisting that people would... You know, bow when he entered the room. That's when we knew something was wrong. You know, I've always been worried it's going to be something like that. Thankfully, the, I'm pretty sure the people around me won't let it get that far. Uh, but I can tell you about, you know, you know as, as much as I like you know, some of the scholarly successes um, I get to have, uh, one thing I know is five years after I'm dead, all those books I've written will be on the $2 box at, on discount at Kurong. Okay, it's fleeting. Uh, You know, whether you're a preacher or you're just someone trying to live your Christian life as best you can, trying to love God and love your neighbour. At the end of the day, our, our mission is preach Jesus, be forgotten. You know, everyone says, "Well, you've got to make your mark. You've got to make your mark in the world." But do we? I mean, just because I don't have my foot imprint or my hand imprint on a Boulevard in Hollywood, it does not mean my life is a failure. I mean, that's a pretty weird metric to measure success in life. Success in life for the Christian is how much we follow the example of Christ who humbled himself, who did not seek self-aggrandizement, who took on the apron of a servant, who died the slave's death. Living our life according to that example, according to that metric, that is the real nature of success. It's the self-emptying, the self-giving, not making much of oneself. The third thing we see in this passage is there is a big emphasis on self-renunciation. I mean, this is kind of the flip side of humility. Now, I've been, I've been, I study the Bible a lot, like, you know, several hours, you know, a a day. I'm always, you know, I'm teaching the Bible, doing theology. I, I have the privilege of doing that. And I'm still learning new stuff. There's no point where I can say I've mastered the Bible. I, I, you know, we have a degree at Ridley College called Master of Divinity. It's the most dumbest name for a degree. It's like, you know, you're like Master of the Universe. I am the Master of Divinity. Things that are divine, I have mastered them. Be called I love God and I'm really trying to figure it out but not really doing it well, and I kind of suck <laughs> of divinity. That's what we should call it. That's what the degree should be called. You know, uh, but there is, so I'm always, I'm always learn, learning new stuff. Even, even the best of, of you know, professional scribes are always learning new stuff about the Bible. And one thing that struck me uh, a while back in going through Philippians is how much. There is this emphasis on people who have given up things in order to serve God, love others, and be a blessing to the church. I mean, we have, I mean, the the ultimate example, the quintessential example that Paul sets forth is the example of Christ. He was equal to God, there is no greater status, and yet he gave that up, he renounced that to take the form of a servant. And then at the end of chapter 2 Paul can talk about you know Timothy and Epaphroditus. He says everyone looks out for themselves. But these two guys they look out for other people. Okay? They're not pursuing their own status and agenda and everything about themselves. They're seeking the good of others. They're renouncing their own ambitions and pursuits. In other words, Timothy and Epaphroditus are the very embodiment of the ethic of humility that Paul has been talking about in this beautiful Christ poem. And then in chapter 3 Paul can give his own example. Paul says, you know, look, when it comes to, you know, uh, the scales of being, you know, uh, really cool within Judaism, I was there. I mean, he he was he was on track to be the professor of rabbinic Judaism. He was, going to, he was going to be you know, one of the leading Torah teachers of his day. He was going to be one of the most fierce and feared Pharisees. Okay? He was zealous. No one could out-Judaism Paul. Okay? He was hot he, he was, he was about it. He was really into it. He knew the law. He knew the traditions of the elders. He even persecuted the church. And Paul says, if you, if you want to talk about status, I, I had a bunch of stuff I inherited. I was Jewish from the tribe of Benjamin. You know, I studied with the best teachers. And then he talks about all his accomplishments, all the things he did as a zealous Judean as one who is who is pursuing righteousness within the law. But he says all of that now I consider it rubbish. And I have laid all that aside, all my inherited privileges, all of my accomplishments. I have laid them aside so I could know Christ and I could be conformed to the pattern of his suffering. Have you ever put that on your CV? Or, you, know, or you, know, you do your annual performance review. What, what, what are your ambitions for the coming year? I want to conform myself to the pattern of Christ and his sufferings. It's, a, it's not a normal. It's not, 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 not what we would normally do. But that's on Paul's CV in chapter 3. He has renounced all those privileges, all those accomplishments. He's put them aside so he can focus on knowing Christ and serving him. And the challenge that Paul lays out for Philippians then is what are the privileges that they have to give up? How do they show humility? Are they going to join the game of thrones, the game of honor in Philippi? Who can get the most honor? Who can be the top dog? Are they going to play that game in the church and brag who's the best Christian, who's, who's the best leader, who's the most gifted, who's the most talented, who's the one who would have Paul's approval, who's the one who had Jesus' approval. Are they going to play that same game in Philippi, the game of power, honors, and status around the world? Paul wants them to renounce that and to live their lives by a different system, by a different code, by a different story. And that's the story of Christ. And that is the same challenge, I think, this passage, the entire book of Philippians, gives us. Which system, which code, which set of rules are we going to live by? Are we going to live according to the metrics of this age and what they regard as the successful, prosperous, and flourishing life? Or do we say, for me, success means taking on the form of a servant, conforming myself to the pattern of Christ and his sufferings? Because if we take that path, we will do certain things. We will do everything we can not to raise ourselves up, but to raise others up. We'll go out of our way to help people who will never be able to help us. People who, who need our help, we help them, but they'll, they'll never be a quid pro quo. They'll never have the opportunity to pay us back for what we've done for them, whether that's in the Christian life or, or what you do in the professional world or in family. That is the type of calling. That is the type of uh, renunciation of things that we've had. And we, we need to, we, And we, that is the challenge of, of us and how we're to live. Now, I can think of a couple of examples of people have, who have done this. Okay, let me give you a somewhat secular. One. When I think of one of the most courageous and manly Hollywood actors, do you know who I think of? I mean, who do you think of? You maybe think you think of The Rock, you know, Mark Wahlberg. Um, oh, who's, who's the um, Ken actor from Barbie? Who's that? Ryan. Ryan maybe you think of Ryan Gosling. Do you know who I think is the most courageous and manly actor in Hollywood? Rick Moranis. Now, does anyone here know who Rick Moranis is? Has anyone seen the movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids? The dad, the dad in that. He was also the the accountant in the original Ghostbusters. I'll tell you why I like Rick Moranis. Very successful actor, but then tragically, his, his wife passed away. He then completely quit acting so he could just focus on his kids i mean he was at the top of his profession you know he was famous going to the oscars and everything but he quit that so he could simply be a father to his children after the death of his wife their mother he didn't just go find a very good au pair and get on with his career he said no nah, i've got to quit my career and i'm going to finish. i'm going to focus on looking after these kids at a difficult season of life. I mean, that's a renunciation of status. Well, let me, let me give you another one. This, 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 is, this is properly theological and religious. You know, I've always been fascinated about the, uh, the churches in Germany during the Second World War. And there were, there were a lot of churches who basically said, oh, okay, you know, we can, we can rejig the Bible and Christian thought and theology to make it, you know, mesh with Nazi ideology. Yeah, a little bit of syncretism. You know, uh, the Fuhrer, the Messiah, it's pretty much all the same. There were some people who went along with that, but others didn't. What's called the Confessing Church, they, they did not go along with that. And that's where you get famous people like Dietrich Bonhoeffer or Martin Niermoller. You know, Bonhoeffer was famously killed. He was hung in, you know, with piano wire towards the end of the war. But there's probably one person you may not have heard about. One name I doubt you have heard, and that is the name Ilsa Friedrichsdorf. Uh, She was a young lady, uh, a Christian lady, in this confessing church. Uh, She found a job working in a school for non-Aryan children. That's... That's children who were either Jewish or Slavic or, or Roma. So she would work in a school with them. And during the worst parts of the war, she would engage in pastoral care for refugees, for people who were, uh, who were traumatized, you know, for wounded soldiers. And she would go into some of the worst parts. Of the conflict during the final stages of the war, to to you know to do her pastoral care thing there, and, and she was she, I mean, she was in demand everywhere. Everyone was asking for her to come and visit, um, you know, the refugees or the troops or or, or, or or survivors of the conflict. Eventually, she died from a mixture of typhus and starvation. Uh, Ilse Friedrichsdorf... Uh, is remembered by very few people. She's not as famous as a, as a Martin Niemoller or a Dietrich Bonhoeffer. There's no Ilse Friedrichsdorf Institute. There's no journal for, you know, Friedrichsdorf studies or anything like that. But she chose the path of service in perhaps one of the most difficult situations any human being can find themselves in. She chose to follow the example of Christ engage in service, putting the needs of Christ and people ahead of herself. And it's people like that who are embodying the kind of ethic, the example we see laid out here in Philippians 2, which is why this is, I think, one of the best passages in the New Testament. And on that note, let me pray. Our Heavenly Lord, we ask you to help us follow the example of Christ. Let us follow in the footsteps of our Lord and Savior when it comes to our humility and our renunciation of self. And we pray, Lord, we would do that, not for our own glory or reputation, but only to increase the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ, God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And it is in the name of Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from among the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth that we pray. Amen.